Welcome to my favorite theorem, a math podcast, and so much more. I'm Kevin Knudsen, professor of mathematics at the University of Florida, and I'm joined today by your other host. Hi, I'm Evelyn Lamb. I'm a freelance math and science writer, usually based in Salt Lake City, but today uh, coming from uh, the Institute for Computational and Experimental Research in Mathematics at Brown University in Providence, Rhode Island, where I am in the studio with our guest, yeah. uh, Edmund Harris. Yeah, this is so, great. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm excited for this, this new format where, uh, where, where there's only two feeds to keep up with instead of three. Yeah, <laughs> we, he even had a headphone splitter available at a moment's notice. Oh, wow. um, so yeah, this is, we're really uh, professional today. That's right. So yeah, yeah, Edmund, will you tell us a little bit about yourself? I was going to say I'm the consummate unprofessional. Um, <laughs> I'm a mathematician uh, at the University of Arkansas, Uh, and as Evelyn was saying, I'm currently at ISERM for the semester, um, working on illustrating mathematics, which is an amazing uh, program that's uh, sort of both both a delightful group of people and a lot of very interesting work uh, trying to get these ideas from mathematics out of our heads. Uh, and uh, into things that people can put their hands on, people can see, uh, whether they be research mathematicians or uh, other audiences. Yeah, I I figured before we actually got to your theorem, maybe you could say a little bit about what the exact, or or some of the the mathematical illustration that you yourself do. Um, So, yeah, uh, well, one of the big pieces of illustration I've done will come up with the theorem. Um, Great. But uh, I have, uh, I consider myself a mathematician and artist, um, and a big part of the artistic aspect, the medium is something, or not, well, both the medium, but more that the content is mathematics. Um, And so thinking about mathematical ideas um, as something that can be communicated within within artwork. Um, And one of the the main tools I've used for that is, is CNC machines. Um, So these are basically robots that control a router and they can move around and you can tell it the path to move on and carve anything you like. Um, So even controlling the machine is an incredibly geometric operation with lots of exciting mathematics to it. Um, When I first came across... um, So one of the sorts of machine you can have is called a five-axis machine. That's where you can control both the position but also the direction that you're cutting in. So you can change the angle of the tool as it's, as it's cutting. Um, and so that really brings in a huge amount of mathematics. And so when I first saw these machine, one of these machines, I did the typical mathematics, mathematician thing, and sort of said, well, I understand some aspects of how this works really well. How hard can the stuff I don't understand be? <laughs> uh, it took me several years to work out just how hard some of the other problems were, uh, but I've so I've written software that um, can can control these machines and turn, in fact, even turn a hand-drawn path into a uh, something the machine can can cut. Um, and so, bring it back to the question, which was about illustrating mathematics. Uh, one of the nice things about that idea is it takes a sort of hand-drawn path, which is something that's familiar to everyone, especially people in architecture or art who are often wanting to use these machines but not sure how. 
And the mathematics comes from the notion that we take that hand-drawn path and we make a representation of that on the computer. Mm -hmm. um, and so you've got a really interesting function there, that going from the hand-drawn path through to the, the computer representation, you can then potentially manipulate it on the computer before then passing it again back to the machine. And so now the output of the machine is something in the real world. The initial hand-drawn path was in the real world. And we sort of see, saw this process of mathematics in the middle. Um, I, amongst other things, I think this is a really sort of interesting view on a, a mathematical model. Um, you have something in the real world, you pull it into an abstract realm, and then you take that back into the world and see what it can and it can tell you on how you and, and in this case it's particularly nice because you get a sense of really what's happening you and you can control things both in the abstract and in the world mm -hmm. uh, and I think you know that's that to me really speaks to the sort of power of, of thinking and, and abstraction of, of, of mathematics um, and of course also controlling these machines allows you to make mathematical models and um, objects and so a lot of my, my work is sort of creating mathematical models through that. But I think the process is a more interesting, in many ways, mathematical idea, illustration of mathematics than the objects that, that come out of it. Yeah. So, so okay, um, pop quiz. What's the configuration space of this machine? Do you, do you know what it is? Um, so well, it's uh, the, the depends on which machine. Oh, the one you the one you were describing, where you can where you can have the angles changing, that must affect the topology of the configuration. So it's R three crossed with a torus. Okay. And so even though you're changing the angle of the bit, you really need to think about a torus. It, right. It's it's really also a subset of a torus mm -hmm. um, because you can't reach all angles. Sure. Right. Uh, but it is a torus and not a sphere. Um, yeah. Okay. And, uh, and and action. So if you think about how to get from one position of the machine to another, uh, you really want to, if you think about moving on a sphere, it's going to give you a very odd movement for the mm -hmm. machine. Whereas moving along a torus gives the natural movement. Sure, um, right. All right, so what's your favorite theorem? So my favorite theorem is the uh, Gauss-Binet. All the way with Gauss-Binet, right. Yes, great theorem, <laughs> yeah. Um, and I think in many ways, because it speaks to what I was saying earlier about the question, you know, as we move to abstraction, that starts to tell us things about the real world. And so you know, the Gauss-Binet theorem comes at this sort of period where mathematics is becoming a lot more abstract and it's thinking about how space works, how, how we can work with things. Uh, you're not just thinking about mathematics as abstracted from the world, but as sort of abstraction in its own right. Um, on the artist side, you would, um, a bit later, you have discussion of concrete art, which is the, the idea that abstract art starts with reality and then strips things away until you get some sort of form. Mm -hmm. Whereas concrete art starts from nothing and tries to build form up. Um, and uh, yeah, I think there's a huge, nice intersection with mathematics. And in the 19th century, you got that, that distinction where people were starting to think about objects in their own right. Mm -hmm. um, and as that happens, suddenly this great insight, which is 
something that can really be be used practically. You can think about the Gauss-Binet theorem, and it's something that tells you about the world. Um, so I guess I should now say what it is. Yes, yeah, that would be do. great. We uh, we did, actually, I guess it must have been almost two years ago at this point. We had another uh, guest who who did choose the Gauss-Binet theorem, but in case someone has not religiously listened to every single right. episode, this was tough we should time definitely, ago. yeah, <laughs> we should definitely <laughs> say it again. Uh, so the the Gauss-Binet theorem um, links the sort of behavior of a surface to what happens when you walk around paths on that surface. Um, so the simplest example is this. Uh, if I start off, I'm on a sphere, and I start at the North Pole, and I uh, walk to the equator. At the equator, I turn uh, 90 degrees. I walk a quarter of the way around the Earth. I turn 90 degrees again and I walk back to the North Pole. And if I turn a final 90 degrees, I'm now back where I started, facing in the same direction that I started. But if I look at how much I turned, I didn't go through 360 degrees. Mm -hmm. So normally, if we go around a loop on a nice flat sheet, you if you come back to where you started, pointing in the same direction, you've turned through 360 degrees. So in this path that I took um, on, on the sphere, I, I turned through 270 degrees. I turned through too, too little. And that tells me something about the surface that I'm walking on. So even if I knew nothing about the surface other than this particular loop, I would then know that the, the surface inside must be mostly like... Uh, positively curved, like a sphere. Um, and similarly, if I uh, did the same trick, but instead of um, taking a, uh, doing it on sphere, I took a piece of lettuce and started walking around the, the edge of a piece of lettuce. And I, in fact, I find that when I got back to where I started, I turned um, like a couple of hundred times round mm -hmm. instead of just, just once or less than once, as is the case with the sphere. And so in that case, you sort of, you've got too much turning, and that tells you that the, the surface inside is made up of a lot of saddles. It's a very negatively curved surface. Um, and one of the motivations of sort of creating this theorem for Gauss uh, I believe, it's all, I always find it dangerous to talk about history of uh, mathematics in public because you never know what the apocryphal stories are. But, uh, the, 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 one of the questions Gauss was interested in was not whether or not the Earth was a sphere. Well, actually, whether or not the Earth was a sphere. So not whether or not it was round mm -hmm. uh, or topologically a ball, but whether it was geometrically really a perfect sphere. Mm -hmm. um, and now we can go up into space and have a look back at the Earth. And so we can sort of do a three-dimensional version of that, regard the, the Earth as a three-dimensional sphere. But Gauss was stuck on the surface of the Earth. So he really had this sort of two-dimensional picture. And what you can do is create um, different triangles and ask for those triangles, what's the average amount of curvature? So I look at that turning, I look at the, the total area, or the size of the triangle, 
and ask, does that average amount of curvature change as I draw triangles in different places around the, the Earth? Um, and at least to Gauss's measurements, again, um, in the potentially apocryphal story I heard, the Earth appeared to be a perfect sphere up to the level of measurement they were mm -hmm. able to do then. Mm -hmm. um, I think now we know that the Earth is a oblate spheroid, in other words, that going between the poles is a slightly shorter distance than across the equator. Right. I believe that it was only a couple of years ago that we managed to make spheres that were more perfect than the Earth. <laughs> uh, so the sort of yeah, the Earth is one of the most perfect spheres that anyone has has worked well, experience of. Um, <laughs> yeah. But it's not quite a perfect sphere when your measurements are fine enough. So, so what's the actual statement of Gauss Bonnet? Uh, so the statement is that the uh, the holonomy, which is a fancy word for the amount of turning you do as you go around a path on a surface. Um, is uh, equal to now. Now, getting the, the precise details. Uh, so, so that that turning is closely related to uh, <laughs> the uh, integral of the, the Gaussian curvature as your as you go over the um, the whole surface. Right. So it's relating you know going round that boundary. To the uh, which is a single integral because you're just moving around a path to the double integral, um, which is the uh, uh, going over every point in the surface, um, and the Gaussian curvature is the notion of whether it, it, you're like a sphere, whether you're flat, or whether you're like a saddle at each individual individual point. And the Euler characteristic pops up in here somewhere, if I remember right. Yeah. So, so the version I was giving was assuming that you have you're, you're bounding a disk in the surface, um, and you can that you can do a more powerful version that allows you to do a loop around uh, something that contains a donut. And, mm -hmm. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah, and it relates the the topology of a a surface, which seems like this very abstract thing, to geometry, which always seems more tangible. Yeah. Yeah, the, the, the notion that the total amount of curvature doesn't change as you shift things topologically. Right. Even though you can push it about locally. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It has to get, yeah, so if you're, if you're pushing it in somewhere, it has to be pushing out somewhere else, right? That's essentially what's going on, I guess, right? Yeah, so, I mean, that's, you know, the, another thing that's really nice about the, the uh, Gauss-Binet theorem. It, le you know, it links back to the Euler characteristic and that early topological work and sort of pulls the topology in this lovely way back into geometric questions, as Evelyn said. Um, and, you know, you can, I mean, and then Euler characteristic has echoes back with Descartes. So you're, you're seeing this sort of long development of, the, you know, the, the mathematics that's coming out is not something that came from nowhere. It was slowly developed by, 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 insight after insight of lots of different thinking on the nature of surfaces and polyhedra and objects like that. Yeah, and so where did you first encounter this theorem? Uh, so this is rather a confession because, so I, when I was an um, undergraduate, I absolutely hated my differential equations 
course. <laughs> and I swore that I would uh, never do any mathematics involving differential equations. Uh, and I had a very wise PhD advisor who said, okay, I'm not going to argue with on, you on this, but I predict that at some point you will uh, give me a phone call and say you were wrong. And I, I don't know when that will be, but uh, that's my prediction. Okay. And it did take several years. Um, and so, yes, many years later, um, I'd learned a lot of geometry and I wanted to get better control over the geometry. So I sort of got into doing differential geometry, not through the normal route, which is you sort of push on through calculus, but through first understanding the geometry and then wanting to really control, and specifically look, thinking about surfaces that were neither the geometry of a sphere, the plane, or the hyperbolic plane. So those are three geometries that you can look at without this, these tools. But when you want to have surfaces that have saddles somewhere and positive curvature, I mean, this relates back to the CNC because you're needing to understand paths on surfaces there in order to, to take your tool and produce surfaces. Uh, and so I realized that the answers to all my questions lay within differential equations and actually differential equations were geometric. So I shouldn't, be, I, I was foolish to uh, dislike them. Um, and I did uh, call up my uh, uh, advisor and say, you know, your prediction has come true. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm calling you to say I was wrong. Uh, yeah. Um, so, so, yeah, so I basically... I came to it from looking at geometry, trying to understand paths on surfaces, and you know, realizing from, from there that there was this lovely toolkit um, that I had neglected. And one of the real gems of this toolkit was uh, this, this theorem. And I think it's a real shame that it's not, um, it's not something that's sort of talked about more. I, I, I'd say you know, this is a bit like the uh, Sistine Chapel of mathematics. Uh, you know, uh, most people have heard of the Sistine Chapel. Sure. Quite a lot of people can tell you something that's actually in it. Right. Uh, and slowly up to a few people, you know, only a few people have really seen it. And certainly and very few people have studied it and really look can, can tell you all the details of it. Uh, but in mathematics, we tend to keep everything hidden until people are ready to hear the details. And so I think this is a, a, a theorem that you can really play with and see in the world. Um, I mean, it's not a, there's some models and things you can build that are not great for podcasts, but uh, <laughs> uh, it's something you can really see in the world. You can put it, put items related to uh to this theorem into the hands of, of people who are um, you know eight or nine years old and they can understand it and do something with it and and see how what happens because all you have to do is give people sort of strips of paper and ask them to start connecting them together and so the angles uh, you know just con controlling how the angles work at the corners mm -hmm. and depending on whether those angles add up to uh, less than 360, uh, well, not, well, not the angles at the corner, depending on whether the turning gives you less than 360, exactly 360, or more than 360, you're going to get different mm -hmm. shapes. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and then you can start putting those shapes together and you build out different surfaces. Um, and so you can then explore and discover a lot of stuff very, very, in a you know, sort of naive way. You don't need to have, you certainly don't need to understand what an integral is in order to have some experience of what the Gauss-Binet theorem is telling you. Mm -hmm. um, and so this is sort of, a, you know, and it's that aspect that this is something that was always there in the world. The sort of experiments, the sort of geometry you can look at um, through uh, differential geometry or and, and things like the Gauss-Binet, that, that was available to the whole history of mathematics. But we needed to sort of make a break from uh, just geometry as a representation of the world to then sort of step back and, and, and look at this, this result that um, is a very sort of practical hands-on one. You know, if you really want to control things, then you do need to have solid multivariate calculus. So generally, you know, the, the three-semester course of calculus is often meant to finish with Gauss-Binet, and it's the thing that's dropped by most people at the end of the semester because you don't quite have time for it, and there's not going, not going to be a question on the test. But, uh, you know, so I think it would be... It's one of those things that you could sort of put out there and have a sort of greater awareness of in, in mathematics, just as this is an interesting, beautiful result. I would say, you know, it's one of humanity's greatest achievements, um, to, to, to my mind. It, you don't have to really be able to understand it perfectly in order to appreciate it. Um, you certainly, as I proved, you can appreciate it without being able to state it exactly. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, you've sold me. Although, as we've learned in this podcast, I'm extremely open, susceptible to suggestions. That's true. Your, <laughs> Evelyn's favorite theorem has changed multiple times now. That's yeah. Just, yeah. That's right. Yeah, and I think I think you brought it back to Gauss-Binet because when when we had uh, Jean Cleland earlier, uh, who said Gauss-Binet, I was like, well, yeah, I guess. The uniformization theorem is trash now. <laughs> My previous favorite theorem, and now, now it had been pulled over to Cantor again. But but you've brought it back. <laughs> Excellent. All right. So another fun, another fun thing we do on this podcast is ask our guests to pair their theorem with something. So Edmund, what pairs well with Gauss-Binet? Well, I have to go with a uh, walnut and pear salad. Okay. All right. I'm intrigued. Well, I think I've already mentioned lettuce. Yes. Yes. And lettuce is an incredibly interesting mm -hmm. curved surface. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then you've got pairs, which give you uh, a nice positively curved sure. uh, thing. But not, you know, they're, they're not just boring spheres. They're, they have yeah. some interesting yeah. changes of curvature. Mm -hmm. um, and then walnuts are also something with very interesting changing curvature. They have very sharply positively curved mm -hmm. pieces where they're sort of coming in, but then they've got all these sort of wrinkly, saddly parts. Um, and in fact, one of the sort of applications of the Gauss-Binet theorem in nature is how do you create a surface that sort of fits onto itself and um, sort of fills a lot of space? Uh, well, it doesn't fill that much space, but gives you a very high surface area to volume ratio. Mm -hmm. So a walnut is an example, or our brains, or coral. You mm -hmm. see the same forms coming up. Mm -hmm. And the way many of those things grow is by basically 
getting more, uh, giving more turning as you grow to your boundary. Right. And that naturally sort of forces this, the, the, this negatively curved thing. So I think the, uh, the salad really shows you uh, different ways in which this, this surface can, uh, the, the theorem can affect the behaviors of the surfaces. Yeah, well, what I want now is something completely flat to put in the salad. Do you have any suggestions? I mean, usually you put goat cheese in such a thing, but that doesn't really work. That's well, a parmesan. You could like yeah. shave yeah, shaving parmesan, some parmesan. Okay. Uh, yeah. or um, uh, maybe some thin cut salami. Mm. Oh, okay. All right. could, and, and so even though those things would would bend over, they, I mean, this is a. We're now onto a different theorem with Gauss, and I don't want to corrupt Avalon away. Mm. Yeah. Um, but you know, the, 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 when you thinly cut the salami, it can it can bend, but it doesn't actually change its curvature. Right. Um, right. Your, your loops on that salami are going to have the same behavior that they had before. Um, and I, I'm a, I, I guess I should also say that I, I did create a toy that makes that paper model that I talked about, uh, easier to use. You don't have to use tape. Mm-hmm. You can hook together pieces, uh, and that, so the toy is called Curvahedra. I was going to say, you should promote your, your toy. This is, yeah. I, I, I am terrible at self-promotion. Yes. We will help you. <laughs> yes. Yes, this is a very fun toy. I, I actually got to play with it for the first time a few weeks ago when you did a little short thing, and I think when I had seen pictures of it before, I I thought it was not going to be as sturdy as it is but this is yeah it's called curvahedra look it up it's these like quite sturdy you you know you don't need to worry about ripping the pieces as you put them together but you can create these things that look really intricate and you can create like positive curvature or flat things or negative curvature in all these different conformations it's a very fun thing to play with and it is a sort of physical version of exactly the gauss Theorem, as you hook together pieces, you're controlling what happens on a loop. And then as you put more of those loops together, you can get a variety of different surfaces from hyperbolic planes to spheres to... uh, uh, And of course, kids have made uh, animals and uh, creatures with it, so you get this sort of control. Um, In fact... It's one of those things you put it into the hands of kids and they do things that you didn't think was really possible with it because their ability to, to play with these ideas and be free is, uh, is always you know, so inspiring. Uh, and so you know, that's what I said. This is a theorem that you can, people can understand as something in the real world and then you can tell the story of how this understanding of the world is linked directly back to abstract esoteric mathematics of the, the, the sort of most advanced thought sort mm-hmm. right and one of my fa- one of my favorite things about curvahedra though is the video that you put online somewhere i think it was on twitter of it of it popping out of your suitcase like you, you compressed it down into your suitcase to travel home one time yes yeah I, I, yeah i have a, a model that's about two a two foot cube um and so you can't travel with that easily but it it can compress very small and it yeah, that, that same object has been in and out of my suitcase and other things several times, and it's now sitting in my office here. That's great fun. And also, you've you've made similar models out of metal, correct? Um, yes. Uh, so the basic system, um, uh, not the, the big one you can crush down to put into suitcase. No, certainly not. I made, no. made a couple of the spheres um, 
and uh, 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 we're currently working on a, a proposal to go outside the Honours College at the University of Arkansas um, that grew out of a course. Uh, it was a, a, a design that was created from uh, Curvahedra and other inspirations by a course I taught with Carl uh, Smith, who is a landscape architect uh, in our landscape architecture school. And um, so there's going to be, hopefully at some point, there's going to be a 12-foot tall Curvahedra-style uh, 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 model uh, outside the Honours College at University of Arkansas. Very nice. Uh, nice. Well, this, yeah. is, this has been great fun. Anything else we want to talk about? Um, yeah, well, do you want to uh, say a website or, or Twitter account or anything where people can find you online? So I am uh, at Gelada on Twitter, um, and there is also at Curvahedra, and um, my blog, which is very rarely updated, but uh, has some nice stuff on it, uh, is called Maxwell Demon. Uh, so yeah, and can you spell Demon. your Twitter? Uh... Uh, yeah, so Gelada is spelled G E L. A-D-A. Um, they are baboons in Ethiopia, or it's a cold beer in Brazil. Huh. Um, I discovered that latter one after being on Twitter, and I regularly get added by people in Brazil uh, who are not wanting to talk to me at all, but they're asking each other out for beers. Ah. <laughs> um, and, um, yeah, so then there's also curvahedra.com uh, where you can get that toy. Cool. Yeah, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks, Evan. Thank you. Thanks for listening to My Favorite Theorem, hosted by Kevin Knudsen and Evelyn Lee. The music you're hearing is a piece called Fractalia, a percussion quartet performed by four high school students from Gainesville, Florida. They are Blake Crawford, Gus Knudsen, Del Mitchell, and Baochan Nguyen. You can find more information about the mathematicians and theorems featured in this podcast, along with other delightful mathematical treats, at Kevin's website, kpknudsen.com, and Evelyn's blog, Roots of Unity, on the Scientific American Blog Network. We love to hear from our listeners, so please drop us a line at myfavoritetheorem at gmail.com, or you can find us on Facebook and Twitter. Kevin's handle on Twitter is at Nivik that's Kevin spelled backwards followed by Knudsen spelled backwards, and Evelyn's is at Evelyn J. Lamb. The show itself also has a Twitter feed. The handle is M-Y-F-A-V-E-T-H-M, that's at myfavoritetheorem. Join us next time to learn another fascinating piece of mathematics. Thank you.